we are remembering and wondering and worshiping and celebrating the end of something. The end of the idea that life begins and ends on this earth in this way in a decaying body that doesn't last forever and that injustices won't be made right and that the end is simply just the end and that those who get ahead won and those who didn't lost. We're celebrating and wondering about and worshiping and hoping and wanting to believe that that is the end of that way of thinking about life. And if it's the end of that, that means that it would be the beginning of something else, the beginning of thinking about life in light of the resurrection, of the resurrection of Jesus as this text calls him the firstborn of the dead. The first, right? And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be discovering and wondering and worshiping in this book called Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, a really strange book. And it's a book with a strange perspective. And it gave me a, a lot of pause. And if, uh, if you were here in the office on Tuesday when I relented and, and, and went along with the lectionary readings and said, I think it's gotta be Revelation, uh, you would have heard my complaints my complaints and my, my frustration about that because there's probably uh, any other book of the Bible, even, even Leviticus, I think, I would rather preach out of. And sometimes I find that the Spirit of God can do its best work in those type of situations. And so I attempted to embrace and submit to what God might want to do through this book. And what I came to was, for this morning, a sermon about time and a sermon about how our point of view is impacted by how we perceive time. Because if anything, Revelation is a book about time. So here's my question. How reliable do you think your perspective is on the things that you see and observe in, in your life on a regular basis? S some of us are really convinced that our perspective is pretty objective. We might find ourselves getting angry when we see something that looks wrong or out of place because we think we've got it understood and it's wrong and misplaced. That's some of us, or maybe sometimes some of us. There are others of us who we doubt ourselves all the time. We doubt our perspective all the time. We wonder if uh, our perspective is ever the accurate one. See gaslighting, if you're familiar, that's a term that's been all over social media lately. Lately, it's a real thing. Um, and, and, and we always wonder and we're always second guessing if what we're seeing and the conclusions we're coming to are the right ones. Both of these are survival strategies. They're ways that we have 
coped with life based on what we experienced growing up and there are ways that we just eke out survival in our lives. Makes me think of the text that was read aloud earlier by Mariah, the gospel text of the resurrection passage where Thomas, he's known as Doubting Thomas, poor guy, I mean, gets a bad rap. I think we would more likely name and more accurately name him something like um, Rational Thomas or Realist Thomas, you know, that kind of thing. So Thomas, he hears from the other 11 disciples and the four or five other female disciples that were around, and he hears that Jesus showed up, and he's like, I don't believe it. I will believe it if I see it. So Thomas had a lot of faith in his perception of reality, that if he were to see it, he he could discount what everybody else thought, but he wouldn't be able to discount his perception, his personal experience of what was real. So So we know the story, we read it. He saw Jesus and he believed. But I'm not so sure sometimes about how reliable my personal experience is. And and that's why I think what we're gonna be looking at here in this text is gonna be so important for us to consider and think about in our relationship to to the divine, to God. Have you ever had this experience before where you were backing up in your car and you look out your window and there's another car that's going forward at the exact same speed that you're backing up and all of a sudden, like your frame of reference disappears and you feel like you're floating? Has that ever happened to you before? Oh my gosh, that's so freaky. I couldn't trust my perception in that moment when that's, when that's happened to me before. Or have you ever had that sense that this, this thing you're experiencing, it happened before, but you, you can't ever quite remember where or when it happened, that deja vu kind of, of sense? Or, or have you ever been in an argument with a, with a roommate or a partner or a spouse and you're both totally convinced that the way you're remembering the situation was the right way and theirs was the wrong way? <laughs> yeah, I knew if I didn't get you on the first two, you'd be able to relate to that one. See, for us as human beings, Our perception, our perspective, it it matters so much. For example, that's one of the reasons why it's really important to vote right now for who the district attorney will be. It's an eight-year cycle, and the district attorney, when they sit in that seat, they get to decide how to interpret the laws of our county, So the laws aren't necessarily changing. They might be adjusted here or there, but what matters is the person sitting in the seat and the perspective that they bring to that seat. Perspective matters so much. There's a scientist uh, that was really interested in perspective and how we see things and how reality sort of looks different depending on where you are. The guy's name, you may have, may have heard of him. His name's Albert Einstein, most famous uh, scientist of the, the 20th century. 
And uh, he, he developed this theory called the, the theory of, of relativity. You may have heard of it. You may have uh, gotten an A on it in high school or cheated your way through it or something like that. But there is this, this idea in this theory of relativity that says this, nothing is at absolute rest or an absolute motion. Kind of like backing up in the car, the other car moving forward. It, it's just that things move relative to one another. Okay? So imagine you're in a train, you're sitting in a train across from somebody and you're looking at them, they look totally still, right? You're just talking to them. But you're both moving 30, 40 miles an hour on a train. But if one of those people, if your friend was outside of the train looking at you, you would look like you were going 30, 40 miles an hour and that they were still. But the truth is, everybody's moving all the time because the earth is spinning through space, it's revolving and rotating around the sun, and none of us are actually ever still. These concepts led to some massive movements forward in scientific theory and thinking. So much so that there are these ideas like the relativity of simul. simu simultaneity. Should have read that before I came up here. Two events simultaneous for one observer may not be simultaneous for another observer if the observers are in relative motion. Or that there's this idea of time dilation. I'm going to come to your neighborhood, I promise. It's just going to take me just another minute or two to get there. Time dilation, that moving clocks are measured to tick more slowly than an observer's stationary clock. So like our whole GPS system, the satellites that are moving outside of the earth in the orbit, they're moving at a different speed and a different rate than how we are on the earth. And so the clocks are actually set differently to compensate for the change because time moves differently in outer space than it does on earth. It actually moves at a different speed. Time changes. This makes me question do I understand anything? <laughs> do, I, do I perceive anything as what it actually is? This is extremely practical and important when we consider what John is writing here. He says in verse eight, he says this about God speaking, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is how God describes God's self. Even, even back in Exodus, Moses standing in front of a burning bush in an ancient desert with a bunch of sheep running around and pyramids in the background, and God is speaking with Moses through a burning bush 
and, and, and Moses says, what's your name? Do you have a name, you know, like, like all the other gods out there? And the voice from the bush responds, I am. I am. Transcending time and space, I am. This is how God describes God's self. Why, why talk about this in the book of Revelation? Why would I take this amount of time to talk about the theory of relativity or any of these other ideas about time and its relativity and our relative movement in the cosmos? Well, because I'm reading this dang book and I read this verse right here, verse seven, he says this, look at it with me if you've got it. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Okay, I'm looking. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Okay, so I'm supposed to be looking right now but every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. But this is written after most of those people would have died. So it would have to be people from the past who are seeing him and they will mourn because of him. And then I'm supposed to be looking, right? And then he says, so shall it be. Okay, so this is yet to come. It's in the future then. But I'm supposed to be looking right now to see it. And then these people who are already dead in the past are gonna witness it too. So I said, oh my gosh. I, I, don't, I don't know how to do this right here. <laughs> this guy is traveling all throughout the past, present, and future in one verse of Scripture. Now, Revelation, any of you grow up with any, uh, any work around that? Anybody have any stories of Revelation in their church? Anybody familiar with the Left Behind series or any of the, the videos and movies? That scared me half to death when I was a child, just catching little pieces of them because my parents were watching them. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a view that was popularized. It was real popular. I'm 40, or I'll be 40 this year, but what does that even matter? Who cares? Time's an illusion, right? Um, especially when you're turning 40. Uh, and, 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 the, and the theory is called uh, dispensationalism. And this guy Darby, around 1830, he came up with it. And it's, and it's this theory that the book of Revelation, as well as the rest of the Bible, it's, it's these clear markations of time. And it just so happens to line up exactly and only with the Western world's history. And it's actually also only about modern times where you're dealing with like things like World War II and you're dealing with uh, various activities that are happening 2,000 years from when the book was written. And, and when you try to follow the scripture in that way, if you try to place God frozen in the time that fits you most conveniently, now I'm coming to your neighborhood, then you're going to end up with something that frankly is very difficult to make any real sense of at all. I mean, this historicism viewpoint the people that ascribe to it, that try to interpret this book, they come to wildly different conclusions because it is, it's, it's so difficult to take that type of position with the God who was and is and is to come. So here's what I want to suggest to us. That maybe as, as this book of Revelation has brought up 
for me, maybe the way that we think about God is in such a linear way, it's such a, a frozen sort of way that, that maybe the divine becomes so out of reach, so unrelatable, so Ill, irrelevant to our lives. I think some of us have God stuck in time somewhere. The God of our imagination is stuck in time. Meanwhile, the God that we see in scripture and tradition that the saints describe is the God who was and is and is to come. Some of us, I think we grapple with the God of the past. That's how we understand God. It's the God that's stuck just repeating the events of the Bible over and over, over and over, can't break into the present. We know Jesus of Nazareth who lived in first century Palestine, but we don't know Jesus the Christ, the one that John says, look, look, there he is, but he's not coming right this minute, but he's gonna be here. And those people back there are gonna see him and, and then he's gonna like hold everything together and, and, and then time is going to resolve itself in some, some way. We know, we know a God that can be studied, examined, and for those theologians out there, systematized. Our culture, we've, we've created a systematized version of the one who is and was and is to come. We know God like we know a history book, like we know a, a, a biological study of a frog that you did in high school or the characteristics of a golden retriever or the life cycle of a butterfly. A God who must bow to the whims of our interpretations that happen to be best suited for our deep and subconscious fears and desires about life. That's why, I, one of the reasons why I dislike the book of Revelation so much. It seems to be such good fodder for people to do that with, to to take this and run with it, to, to uh, make all of their fears and all of their subconscious uh, things that govern them into something God is bound to do. But not just the God of the past. Some of us, some of us are bound. We've been given this God and we've accepted this God, the God of the immediate so there's, there's the God of the past, and then there's the God of the immediate, the God who is present in only very stressful situations where we need intervention right then and right now. It's a God that lives in certain places and not others. It's the God you get ready to encounter on a Sunday morning, so you try to pretty and clean yourself up. Not saying don't take a shower, do that. Before you get to the space where that immediate God lives. This is the God of the golden calf, right? This is a Republican God or, or the God who must have us speak in tongues or, or end our pain and suffering when we want it to be ended, lest that God be not God. So 
this God of this past we're so often bound by. We've been, we've been given this God of the immediate that must appear and must perform in the ways that we want. And then there's the God of only the future that will one day save your soul and bring you to heaven, who's not really concerned with anything you do up until that point, as long as you hold the right ideas, the right thought unceasingly in your head, especially when you are dying, so that one day, one day, but not today, and not back then, but one day that God will finally show up. Do you relate to any of these gods? This God stuck in the past, this God that must show up now, and this God of the future. This is not the God of the text of Revelation. That's why I found myself down, forgive the pun, wormholes on theories of relativity, general and special relativity, all right? I know the difference, probably not, but I kind of know the difference. The God of the saints, the God of the traditions of Christianity, the God of scripture, even the very one in front of us is not limited to the past or only the present and the immediate or some distant future, but this is an all over everywhere type of God. I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and is to come the almighty. There's an exception in Einstein's theory of relativity about things and how they move and the perception that we have of them. Light. The only thing that has a constant speed according to the theory of relativity is light. The speed of light is constant, but everything else can be affected by the pull of gravity, which by the way, we don't even actually know what gravity is. No scientist can actually explain what gravity is, only what it does. The speed of light is constant, but other things can be affected by the pull of gravity, which can affect time, make it slow down or speed up. And then I read in Revelation 22, 23, that this city, this city that, that the writer is prophesying about, that he is seeing in his mind's eye, that he is being uh, enlightened by the Spirit of God uh, to imagine. It says, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Wow. So, so actually, what we, what we read in, in Revelation corresponds pretty well to Einstein's theory of general relativity and specific special relativity. Second Peter says this, three through eight, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness and said he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So 
If you're still with me, you might be wondering then, well, Jamin, you just dogged this God of the past and the present and the future. So how would you like us to relate to God then? I'm gonna go back to this text in Revelation in verse five, it says, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. The faithful witness. John is writing to people who are facing persecution and they're finding ways to compromise, to, to not be martyred, you know, not get killed just for believing in Jesus and, and not to acquiesce to the culture in such a way that they in fact lose their witness about this other type of reality, this resurrection life that Caesar is not the one in charge, but it's actually a crucified and risen Messiah. And he's calling on them to remember the faithful witness of Jesus, representing God to us right now and to the people in the time in which Jesus lived his life on earth. And here's, here's, I just wanna get something real practical to you. Maybe it doesn't, it's practical. Um, what I wanna say to you is you can invite the living God, the God who is the great I am into your past. God already lives there. You can invite the living God into the memories, into the shame, into the harm, into the hurt that you experienced and ask God to bring healing in your life through your past. I know I sound a little bit crazy this morning. The firstborn from the dead the eternal God here need not be forced to just appear when you say or when you want because something fundamental about our understanding of the presence of God changed in the firstborn from the dead, in Jesus the Christ. This is the Christ, the anointed one, the place in which heaven merged with earth and it was visible and seen and understood and it changed reality, which means that God is already there in your midst. You don't have to force and conjure this God to appear, this God of the immediate, this God that seems not to be there in your pain and your suffering, that this God is already there and in your midst. You don't need to build a golden calf. You don't need to get to a certain place at a certain time because the resurrected God is there. The firstborn from the dead, the Jesus, the Christ. And finally, here, this last part of the passage, he says, the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is the, this is the God that rules something, but when I look out, I don't see it. I don't see a God ruling the kings of the earth. So this is something, this reminds me of verse seven where he says, look, and it's something that has not yet happened. And I'm thinking, why is he telling me this? Why does the writer want me to know that God, that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth? It's because of what will rule me otherwise. 
The same thing that the Christians were faced with at the time. Compromising their witness, compromising the reality of a God-soaked world because they couldn't give up the God of their economics, the God of their money, the God of their financial security. You see, if the God of the future is only concerned with you after you die, if you believe some of the right things when you were alive, then that God is powerless and impotent to do anything about your state in life right now. But this God of the future, this ruler of the kings of the earth, not yet and still somehow right now, can give you a purpose beyond economic security and bowing before those things and seeking financial security at the expense of living into the kingdom of heaven. I want to close with this, that one of the most powerful metaphors, the most longevity of the metaphors and the meanings of what God is like, this, this God that transcends the present and the past and the future all at the same time is light. This one thing that is the constant in the cosmos as we understand it, this one thing that is not impacted by gravity or even the perspective from which we come to view it. And I wanna leave you with this definition of light. Have you ever thought about that? If you've taken a lot of science classes, you probably have thought about like, what is light? Here's, here's how it's described in the, I know, the Encyclopedia Britannica. Hey, they still exist. No single answer to the question, what is light, satisfies the many contexts in which light is experienced, explored, and exploited. The physicist is interested in the physical properties of light, the artist in an aesthetic appreciation of the visual world. Through the sense of sight, light is a primary tool for perceiving the world and communicating with it. Light from the sun warms the earth, drives global weather patterns, and initiates the life-sustaining process of photosynthesis. On the grandest scale, light's interactions with matter have helped shape the structure of the universe. Indeed, light provides a window on the universe from cosmological to atomic scales. Almost all of the information about the rest of the universe reaches Earth in the form of electromagnetic radiation, aka light. By, the by interpreting that radiation, astronomers can glimpse the earliest epochs of the universe, measure the general expansion of the universe, and determine the chemical composition of stars and the interstellar medium. This God of cosmic proportions outside of space and time I find that thinking of the divine in terms of light 
It encourages me. It gives me hope. It reminds me of the metaphors of revelation. And so I want to encourage you as we get ready to pray to ask yourself, what would it mean if God wasn't stuck in the past or forced to show up in the future, in the present, or only concerned with some far distant future? But if God was as near and as present as the light-soaked cosmos itself, let's pray.